Good to see you this morning, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me uh, to page uh, 955, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can also find the text of the morning in your worship bulletin, I believe, and you can follow along there with me. Well, Paul's writing here to the church of the Corinthians, and they're struggling in a number of areas of what we would call righteousness uh, you know, versus unrighteousness. They're really struggling to be a righteous people. And uh, Paul picks this up, we're going to pick this up in verse 9, where the Apostle Paul speaks to the church, and he says this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. And in Greek, that term but is, rep is repeated each, on each, at each point for emphasis. It's not in your ESV translation. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in or by, same word, in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. Quote, you know, all things are lawful for me, quote, but I will not be dominated by anything. Quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food, actually referring to sexual relations. Man has to eat. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know? that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as most of you know, this year's mini-mester during January, our adult Sunday school class, we're dealing with a very serious problem. Um, and if you were here last week and you heard Kevin Schick speak to us, the counselor, he described this problem as the pornification of our world. And by this, he was referring to the, just the pervasive flood of pornography that is worldwide with all of its exploitation with all the sex trafficking and the prostitution that go along with that, with all of the addictions that accompany it. We've been using the term since last November, 
I've been using the term pornication, derived from the New Testament word porneia, that's, that's translated sexual immorality. We've been using this word pornication to describe all manner of pagan sexual practices, including the explicit images of those practices. Porno pornography is just really the face of a whole industry of cultivating and promoting and advocating and hooking people into pornication for profit. Now Paul attacks, he attacks sexual immorality, he attacks pornication relentlessly because the pagan world also was immersed in it. New believers were bringing it with them into their Christian lives. It was being imported actually into the church, whether it was seen on Sunday morning in the worship service or not. The problem wasn't just limited to new believers. And the problem wasn't that Paul was sexually inhibited. In the next chapter, he encourages free and uninhibited joy in the sexual intimacy of marriage. The problem was, as Paul puts it in verse 12 of our text, as he turns his opponent's quote against them, you may say, all things are profitable for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The issue was slavery. All sin is slavery. It's all slavery. The pornication comes with the additional burden that Paul describes in verse 18 in this way. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And as we've seen in very practical terms in recent weeks during our mini-master, we actually harness through pornography, we actually harness our physiology, our brain chemistry, our hormones to sin. We allow our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit, to be hijacked. And that's why Paul begins that verse 18 with, flee from this, flee from pornication, flee from it in all of its forms. But it raises the question that I want to address this morning which is how do we deal with this when it's in our lives? How do we deal with this when it is something that we ourselves are, are struggling with? And I would suggest that we need leverage. We need leverage against the sin of pornography because we've got to pry it out of ourselves. It is not easy. It is a battle. It is a fight. It's a fight for women. It's a fight for men. And there are all kinds of levers that can be used for leverage. And we talked about them. All kinds of levers, very useful. There's counseling. It really is useful. There's accountability. There's prayer. There are, are filters and barriers, essentially, we can put up in order to keep ourselves from the areas of temptation. And what about regret or guilt? or the fear of discovery. All these things really are levers. And we need all the levers we can get when we're struggling with a sin that has hijacked our bodies. We need all the levers that we can get. And our mini-master, hopefully, also, is providing a strong lever. And the strong lever our mini-master is intended to provide is this, that we are rethinking what pornography is. 
We are rethinking how pervasive and how addicting it is, how adversely it affects, how adversely it affects our sexuality and ability to be intimate, how it is the face of a huge industry that not only targets you as adults, but is targeting your children, and how exposing ourselves to pornography really is to engage with prostitutes. We are rethinking our understanding of pornography. And if you ask, how is this a lever? Well, the truth is that when we see pornography for what it is, not for the displays it wants us to see, when we see pornography for what it actually is, our response shifts to a higher and a truer ground. Our response shifts from this is wrong to this is demonic. From looking at pornography is inconsistent with my life to my looking at pornography is intolerable. Our sense of response shifts from passive disapproval to a relentless and an active antagonism. And that's what it takes. There's no other way, I don't think, to read Paul in verses 12 to 20, but to understand that he is really provoking the church of his time to rethink pornication in all of its forms. So they become intolerable. Individuals decide it's intolerable. They're not told it's intolerable. They tell themselves, they preach this to themselves, that it is intolerable. Paul says our bodies belong to the Lord. He says our bodies are members of Christ. He says in those verses, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit within us. He says our bodies are not our own. He says that our bodies also have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Don't let it be hijacked. But that's not where Paul starts. He doesn't start in this passage with the leverage. You know, leverage, you know what teeter-totter is? Leverage. Leverage requires two things. Yes, it requires a lever, but it also requires a solid, immovable point that is far more sturdy and that is far more reliable than the object that you want to move, that you want to pry out. And that's what you rest your, level, your levers on. You, left your, you rest your levers on that object. And you, then you not only rest your lever on that, you pry down on it. You rely on it absolutely and completely. You completely bear down on that in order to remove that sin from your life. And that object you rest a lever on is called a fulcrum. You pry it down. You pry down on it to pry up and pry out the sin in your life. And that fulcrum, that key foundation, that immovable reality, that thing we have to press down upon and press into constantly is our redemption in Jesus Christ. It is redemption in Christ. Look at how Paul begins this passage. He says, do you not know? You notice I emphasize that phrase because he says it four or five times through this passage altogether. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he immediately amps up what he just said. He says, do not be deceived. You know, do you not know? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy people, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
Well, you just look at that. It sounds a lot like Terrence's sermon last week, doesn't it? It really does. Gee, I hate to even read the verse. Be associated with it. We'll let Terrence preach on hell next time. <laughs> but when you read that verse from Paul, what is it saying? What does it mean? Does it mean that church is reserved for righteous people? Does it mean we put a sign over the front of the sanctuary that says, the righteous enter here? The answer is no. Not at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Paul immediately adds in verse 11, and such were some of you. He doesn't say let them in. He says this is what you were. This is what you knew in your own lives. Some of you, for sure. And I want to say it's true of Church of the Atonement. It's not just true of the Corinthian church. Some of us were sexually immoral. Some of us were idolaters. In fact, all of us were. Some of us were homosexual offenders. Some of us were thieves. Some of us were greedy and so on. Some of us, some of us, it applies to us. But, he writes, you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And this is our fulcrum. This is our redemption. This is what we count on for support. This is the reality that will sustain us in our battle against pornography as well as other sins we're prying to get out of our lives. It's what Paul referred to at the end of the passage when he said redemption is what he's referring to when he wrote at the end of the passage, you were bought with a price. That's a perfect definition of redemption. You redeem something, you buy it with a price. God has done everything necessary to deliver you, everything necessary. On the cross, dying for our sins, Jesus satisfied God's justice so that in his justice and in his holiness, he could forgive us and still be just because Jesus took our guilt the guilt of our sin on himself. He bore in his body the wrath of God that we truly do deserve. And if you give yourself, if you give yourself to Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, I don't assume everyone here is a Christian. I say if you give yourself to Christ as your Savior and Lord, when you place your faith in him, this is what happens. God applies the benefits of his son's death immediately to you. And the New Testament puts it this way. And really, it's quite a graphic way to put it. The New Testament puts it this way. That Jesus' blood washes your sins away. Isn't that amazing? His blood washes your sins away. There are a lot of things you may not understand about the theology of the cross, the theology of the redemption. This is something we can all know, that it is, it is his blood that washes me. It is his blood that makes me clean. It's his loving sacrifice that was by which my life came to be purchased and purchased for, for God. So what this means, God, Jesus' blood washes us, is that immediately God forgives you and he accepts you as his own. He doesn't see you as defiled and dirty and unclean. And like the children of Israel in Egypt, 
You're redeemed from the house of bondage, the house of sin, and the cost of your liberty, your liberation, has been born in the body of a great Savior. So that now you are God's, you are God's people. And He truly is your God. So Paul wrote that way. But you were washed, freed from your sin. But you were sanctified, set apart then for God's holy purposes. But you were justified, you were accepted and restored to God. This is your redemption that is accomplished with Christ. And so our text adds that these had happened, these three things happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But the text does not stop there. It goes on with equal intensity and says these things happen. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, and, not only in Christ's name, but and, in, or by, the Spirit of our God. You heard that first reference to Christ the Son. But then there's a second reference to the Holy Spirit and to God the Father. Well, this matter of redemption is Trinitarian. It is not Unitarian, local, uh, isolated to Christ alone. The first reference to Christ is to this great redemption he's accomplished for us. But the second reference to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit sent by God the Father, is to how this redemption is applied to us in our lives. This cleansing, my friends, this sanctifying, this justifying must translate across, from the cross, into our own hearts and lives. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So while we know what these words mean, these words uh, washed and sanctified and justified in terms of Christ on the cross, think about what these words mean in terms of you and your life when you turn it over to Christ. They mean that when you turn your life over to Christ, God who sent His Son to the cross sends His Holy Spirit to dwell in you. It's just as real, it's just as true as the Incarnation and His Christmas. He sends His Holy Spirit into you to unite you to Himself, to provide you with everything you need to lead a godly life. God is with you. That's what it means. God really is in you. He takes your being clean, your being sanctified, your being justified very, very seriously. He takes it more seriously than we take it, I think, ourselves many times. And this is the truth then about us. This is the truth about us. And if anything is contrary to this truth about us, that we were cleansed, sanctified, justified, if there's anything contrary to that truth about us, then either, then either it is a lie or it is intolerable. By lie, I'm talking about the deep and hopeless lies. We believe, our, we, believe we tend to believe about ourselves so we don't act on the truth. Like the lie, God isn't really with me. How different that is from Jesus' promise, I'm with you always. Or the lie, I can't change. I'm going to give up. 
I tried. How different that is from the lie, or the, from the truth, rather, that says, I will not be dominated by anything. How different that is from greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. How different that is from we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. If washed and sanctified and justified, if this was only, if this was only the way God sees us, we have been set up. If there's been no inner work of God in us, by which he's united himself to us and gives us life to overcome sin and to thrive, then nothing can be different. You know, C.S. Lewis said that, to this point, he said that a grass field, no matter how hard it tries, can never produce wheat. It can't. It must be plowed. It must be turned upside down. And seeds bearing the potential for wheat must be planted and sown everywhere and take root and grow. So, with that in mind, imagine with me for a moment. You're a grass field. And you come to God. And you say to God, God, look at me. All I am is grass. Please forgive me. And God says, yes, I forgive you. And now I command you, produce wheat. What a miserable thing that would be. Because being forgiven would simply come down to hearing the same crushing, impossible demand again. But instead, that's not what happens. Instead, we come to Christ our Redeemer and we fall before him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a grass field. And he says to us, I forgive you, grass field. And what's more, I have purchased you. And you are now mine. And I will never turn you back over to what you were. And we say, well, what does that mean? How does that work? And then suddenly we start feeling something. We think, oh, all this is great. And then we think, Lord, wait a minute. What are you doing to me? I'm not feeling like myself. I'm beginning to feel differently. There's something going on in me. And he says, did I not purchase you? You are mine. And so as I forgave you, I just plowed you. You are no longer a grass field. And I have just given you life, the seed of my promise, the seeds of my word, and they are each one alive to accomplish my will in you. So you let my word sink deep in you. You welcome those roots in your soil. You let them have their way under the surface of your being, and you will produce much fruit because I have done much, much more than forgive you. I have truly redeemed you. There are a hundred different helpful, useful levers for prying and tearing out the most stubborn weed from your life, the most obstinate and heavy stone of stumbling that you can name. It is redemption. It is redemption to Christ on the cross and in you by the Holy Spirit. It is redemption 
that makes those bars and timbers, all those levers, sufficient. Redemption is the power of the truth in the face of every lie. Redemption is for every life. So I encourage you this morning, make it your own, keep it your own, and use it as you battle the sins and the struggles of your flesh. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning that you would apply these words to my life and to all of our lives. I thank you for this beautiful passage that names our sins and says so honestly, but such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And rather than pound us with a hammer telling us as Christians in the midst of our sin struggles, that means you're going to hell. That is not at all what it means. It means we're going to recover that fulcrum and use those levers and not forget the truth about ourselves and turn to God for his help. Lord, may this church be purified, sanctified from the pornication of a pornified world. We can live and serve you. We really can be light on a hill. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.